I'd like to invite you to take your Bibles, please, and go to Romans chapter 7. Romans chapter 7 this morning. Apologize for missing last Sunday. I'm thankful for Pastor Jacob and Pastor Peter uh, pinch hitting. Uh, every uh, so often, this time of the year, I get hit. Uh, I think the last time was like nine years ago, first or second weekend of February. Uh, some Something crashes in and uh, my my head collapses. So grateful to be back and uh, thankful for the opportunity to look at the word. You can probably tell my voice isn't completely back, so I'm going to do my best to work my way through it. I, a couple of years ago, had agreed to teach a doctoral level class this past week. So I was doing that Wednesday through Friday. Uh, so Lord helped me get through that. So I'm trusting him to get through, get through today as well. I got a couple of encouraging things this week uh, that are encouraging for preachers. Probably, hopefully, will make sense to you. But happened to read that David Martin Lloyd Jones, when he was preaching through Romans five through eight, preached 144 sermons. All right, so we're in chapter seven, and this is number 14. So I don't think we're going to get to 144. All right, so so you might think I move slow, Lee. But that uh, is like glacial, right? 144 messages. So we're not going to do that. The other one actually came from inside of Scripture, 2 Peter chapter 3. Here's what Peter says about the Apostle Paul. As also in all his letters, speaking of them, in them of things which are, uh, in which are some things hard to understand, which the untaught and unstable distort as they do the rest of scriptures to their own destruction. The last part of that is a great reminder uh, that the writings of the Apostle Paul are scripture, right? He says the writings of Paul as they do the rest of scripture. But he makes the point that sometimes Paul writes stuff that's hard to understand. I'm thinking, okay, I'll ask him maybe someday if I remember. Peter, were you talking about Romans 7 when you said that? Because this, this is one of those sections of the Apostle Paul uh, that has warranted hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of pages of people debating exactly some of the details of it. But there's a, there's a, a core principle of biblical interpretation that is good to remind us of. And that is this, that you, you work from the clear things to the obscure. Right? And, and here's the good news about Romans 7. The main point is actually very clear. Paul tells us exactly why he's writing what he's writing. So the point is clear, and I think, uh, I think no matter how you take some of the things that are tough to understand, uh, the point is really clear. The part that's hard to understand, uh, we'll see, Lord willing, over the next, uh, this, a little bit this week, but really next week when he has this whole conversation about I battle with this and battle with that, the questions, who's, what's he talking about? Is that before he was saved, after he was saved? Is, is that all people? Is that just Jewish people? I mean, there's, there's just lots of interpretive difficulty about some of that detail. But none of that should cause us to miss the basic central point that Paul is making in this passage, and, and it's really important for us to get it. 
But it's helpful for us to remember in some ways, right? and I, I think two weeks ago I alluded to this, uh, the, the main thrust of what Paul is saying is in chapter 6 and 8, and chapter 7 is really, in some ways, it's like a parenthesis. He said some things about the law that could be misinterpreted, so he takes a chapter to make certain that that misinterpretation isn't left alone, right? His primary point is about the work of Christ to rescue us from the penalty of sin and the ministry of the Spirit to enable us to overcome the power of sin. And how the law of Moses relates to that, particularly in the first century when you had congregations that were um, very closely tying together Jewish and Gentile people and trying to navigate all of that. Remember in this same book, chapter 14, You've got people disagreeing with each other about what they can eat and what days they have to observe, right? So the fault line is along Jew and Gentile things. The same things here with the law, right? A Jewish Christian would be asking, so what about the Mosaic law? And some Gentiles who had been what would be called God-fearers, that is, they, they may have been a part of the synagogue as a Gentile because they had come to know that the God of Israel was the true and living God, and now the gospel comes. And so what do we do about the Mosaic law? And and if what you're saying is true, Paul, what does that say about the Mosaic law? So Paul has to take time to address that and and to work through that. And, And I believe it's very valuable for us but we need to we need to make certain we listen carefully, right? Because you know the problem wasn't with what Paul wrote. According to Peter, it was people who were untaught, right? He describes them as untaught and unstable, and they distort the scriptures. So I hope you're here this morning. You go, I don't want to be untaught, and I don't want to be unstable, and I certainly don't want to distort the scriptures. So, so the problem isn't in what Paul wrote, it's in an approach to what Paul wrote that doesn't take into consideration all that he's written and what the scriptures say. So we, we need to recognize that and work our way through it because actually working through it, if I could say it this way, like Hebrews 5 says, is part of how we move from milk to meat. Right, We start to become skillful in the word of righteousness. If all we want is Captain Crunch for every meal, it tastes good for a while, but it's not going to be that healthy. Right, We have to actually move to things that are good for us. And sometimes, sometimes eating things that are good for us aren't the first choice that we would make. But it's the right choice. It's the thing we have to, to work toward. All right, so let's look, please, at Romans chapter 7 and verses 7 through 12. Lord William, this morning we'll, we'll make our way through. What shall we say then, verse 7, what shall we say then? Is the law sin? May it never be. On the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law, for I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin taking opportunity through the commandment, produced in me coveting of every kind. 
For apart from the law, sin is dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin became alive and I died. And this commandment, which was to result in life, proved to result in death for me. For sin, taking an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So then the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. All right, so let's again just remind us quickly of why Paul would have to say something like this. And it's because of the potential misunderstanding of some things he's already said. Go, for instance, to chapter 6 and verse 14, where he says, 6.14, For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law but under grace. What then, shall we sin because we are not under law, but under grace may it never be? So, so some who are convinced that the law was the only way to actually overcome sin, hear Paul say, actually, we're out from under the law. And their, their inclination is goes, well, should we sin then? And Paul's answer has been, no, may it never be. In part, he answers that at the end of chapter 6, because we've been freed from sin and enslaved to God. Look at verse 22, I'm sorry, verse 22. But now having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit resulting in sanctification and the outcome eternal life. So when God saves people through Jesus Christ, he doesn't just change the outcome. You were condemned, you're not condemned anymore. He does do that, but that's not all he does. He actually also sets you free from sin and makes you the servant of righteousness, the servant of God. So the answer is, well, should we're free from the law, so should we sin? No. Understand what God did for you. He set you free from sin and enslaved you to himself. But also look at chapter 7 and verses 4 and 6 we looked at two weeks ago. And these two statements he makes in here about our relationship to the law if we're in Christ. Verse 4, therefore, my brethren, you also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ. And then down in verse 6, but now we have been released from the law, having died to that which we were bound. So he, he's, he describes it as a death to the law, being released from the law, because we died to the thing we were bound. We were bound to the law, we died to it, we're released from it. Okay, so we're not under the law. But here's where Paul says something that probably is what he's starting to address then in verse 7. Look what he says again in verse 5, because this, this is somewhat shocking, right? If you grew up in the context, and even if you know the Old Testament, I mean, just this morning in Psalm 19, right? The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul, Right? The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. Now read verse 5. For while we are in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in the members of our body to bear fruit for death. Huh? Whoa, hold on, time out here. Like all of the second half of Psalm 19 is talking about how wonderful God's law. If you read Psalm 119, right? How wonderful the law is. What are you saying? Right? What, what are you telling us here? 
And so that's, that's really like sort of the, the, the setting or the context for the verses that we read in 7 through 12. Right, Paul, if you're saying what happened was the law aroused these things, is the law sinful? Right, look at, look at verse 7 again. There's the question. What shall we say then? Is the law sin or sinful? Is the law a bad thing? Is it evil? Paul's answer is, may it never be. That is not the case. That's the, if I could put it this way, that's the wrong conclusion to come to. Right? If, if you hear what Paul has said about dying to the law, being released from the law, being not under the law, and that in fact, the law had, uh, had a connection in us with actually us doing sin, and you come to the conclusion that the law is the problem, you miss the point. It's not the law that's the problem. Sin is the problem. Right? That's, that's the basic. If I could put it down to just like simple statements, that's what he's saying in 7 through 12. The law is not the problem. Sin is. Right? That's why he could say in verse 12, the law is holy and righteous and good. That's why you could say, is the law sin? May it never be. Right? The law is not the problem. Think about it this way. Verse 7, verse 12. The law is not the problem. Verses 8 through 11. Sin is. Right? Sin is the problem. And, and that's what he's going to drive at for us because we need to understand that because people, if they don't get sin, will misuse the law. Right? If they underestimate the power of sin, it will tilt them toward legalism. I can manage sin by the law. Or if they hear Paul saying that the law is the problem, they'll run to an opposite kind of error that the big name for which is antinomianism. That is antinomos' law. People who reject law entirely. Right? And Paul doesn't go that route either. So we have to see these two truths. The law is not the problem. Verse 7, verse 12. Sin is the problem. Verses 8 through 11. And we have to hold those uh, clearly because that's the truth that God has for us. Right? And it helps us understand, for instance... When he says the law is not the problem, it helps us understand those positive statements about the law in Psalm 19 or Psalm 119 or even going back into the Pentateuch when, when it talks about the fact that, that there's no God like our God who has revealed his statutes to us, right? I mean, Israel's claim to uniqueness was that the true and living God didn't just exist, but that he communicated his rule for life to them. It was a good thing and a blessing. And you find that all throughout the Old Testament, and in fact reiterated in the New Testament, like Paul says here, the law is holy and righteous and good. 
Right? So, so that helps us understand how the scriptures can speak that way. And it also guards us against both antinomianism or legal and legalism, or if you want to go with the L's, libertinism and legalism, right? The, the, the former abandons all law and acts as if commands from God are inherently bad. And that is not a biblical position. The scriptures are full of commands for us, right? Just even think about people who want to, who want to say that. They'll go, well, it's all reduced to two commands. Oh, so commands aren't completely bad. The command to love your God and love your neighbor, those, those commands are okay. You just want to be able to decide exactly what else that means all by yourself. Right? Nobody actually believes that the New Testament leaves the Christian without moral imperatives. So it's a, it's a dead end that always ends up in massive problems when people go that route. But also a dead end is the, the, the issue of legalism, which, which ultimately drives people into bondage to sin, not freedom from it, right? Because it produces self-righteousness. It doesn't actually produce the righteousness that's pleasing to God. So here's what I'd like to do. I'm just gonna, I wanna just walk through these verses and show you the, the case that the Apostle Paul makes for this simple truth that the law is not the problem, sin is. Verse seven, he addresses the work, if I could put it this way, the work of the law. That is, it exposes sin. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? May it never be. On the contrary, Right? Rather than it being sin, on the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law, for I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said, you shall not covet. Let me just really quickly, because I'm assuming, I don't want to assume this, and I have been. The law here is the Mosaic law. Right? So he's not talking about like the law of, of the city of Allen Park about taking your garbage out or driving on the speed limits. There might be some way downstream application of that, but this is the Mosaic Law, and we know that because he goes from the law to a specific commandment, which is the 10th commandment of the Decalogue, thou shalt not covet, and he quotes it in verse 7, right? At the end of the verse, you shall not covet, is a quotation, right, from the Mosaic Law in Exodus chapter 20 and verse 17, repeated also in Deuteronomy chapter 5 and verse 21. So he's talking about a specific law code like he's been doing all through chapter 5, 6, and 7. Right? He's talking about the Mosaic Law, and here's what he says about it. It helps us identify what sin is. Verse 7, I would not have come to know sin except through the law. So he's Point here, I think, when he's using no, is not merely intellectual, but also experiential. Right? So, so the law of Moses detailed out specifically what sins were so that we could identify them. This is a violation of the will of God. This is, this is sin. All right, and so he's saying the law exposes sin in that it identifies it for us. 
But then he actually takes it a step farther in the second part of the verse when he adds the commandment, for I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said you shall not covet. And, and most take this to mean that Paul's actually referring here to, if I could put it this way, sort of the intensification process that happens in it, that it actually helps us uh, recognize our guiltiness in it. All right, so so I'm gonna I'm gonna use two words that make sense to me. It identifies sin and it actually indicts sinners. Right? Paul's going, the the command about coveting came to me, and all of a sudden I I knew what coveting was because it was happening in my heart. In fact, he goes on to say more about that. Look at verse eight. He says, For for sin taking opportunity through the commandment produced in me coveting of every kind, for apart from the law, the sin is death. So, so here's, here's what, what this text is saying, verse 7. The law is not sin, it's actually good because it exposes sin. It identifies it for us so that we know what sin is, but it also, and this is where we may struggle with it being good, but it is also good in that it indicts us as sinners. Right? The law exposes not just sin abstractly, but sin in my life, which I need, which you need. Right? We have to become aware of sin so that we can recognize the consequences of it and realize we need an answer for it, right? To be left blissfully in ignorance about our sin might feel good right now, but then we arrive at judgment of condemnation. Because remember, we say it this way, ignorance of the law is no excuse, right? You don't have to actually know a standard to be violating a standard, so it is in your best interest to be aware of it. And God gave the law to help sinners understand what sin was and also their own sinfulness. All right, and those are good things the law does. That's why the law is not the problem. Then, and you, you saw me say this, right? Seven, the law is not the problem. 12, the law is not the problem. 8 through 11 is the sin is the problem. Let's just keep walking the way he does, because all of a sudden he switches from the law is not the problem to start to show us really where the problem is. And in verse 8, he, he shows us that sin uses the law to produce sin. In fact, let me show you the parallel way he makes his case, because you can see this uh, in, in the language. Verse 8 Sin taking opportunity through the commandment. Then drop down to verse 11. For sin taking opportunity through the commandment. All right, so here's, here's where the two start to fit together. The law is actually good. It exposes sin by identifying what it is and indicting us as sinners. Sin is the problem Because what sin does, in verse 8, takes opportunity by the law to do something. 
And then verses 9 through 11, sin takes opportunity by the law to do something. Right? So he makes two more arguments about the problem being sin. The first is sin uses the law to produce sin. Sin seizes the opportunity when sinners meet commandments to provoke sin. And we talked a little bit about this two weeks ago. Uh, we, you know, the way we talk about it in our culture is the forbidden fruits principle. Right? When, you know, I, I illustrated two weeks ago, I walk by something that says, do not touch, and I'm like, Ugh. anyone? Right? Because there's something, there's something that pushes against the restraint. And so here's what the text is saying. The law comes along and tells us what God's will is, and sin sees that as an opportunity to provoke us to violate God's will. Sin taking opportunity through the commandment. All right, so the one that Paul's specifically using is, do not covet. And I hear the commandment of God, and sin goes, you know, you really want that. Who can tell you that you can't want that? There's nothing wrong with you wanting that. Right? Sin takes advantage of the opportunity of the commandment to provoke actually in us the coveting that is prohibited. And so I think it is that forbidden fruits principle, but I think it also goes deeper, and I think this is part of why Paul picks coveting. Right? He's got ten commands in the ten commandments he could have seized. He grabbed coveting, and I don't think it was an accident. And I think it was precisely because, and some take the coveting command as being something of a summary going back across it, and I think there might be some validity to that because Actually, even before the law of Moses came, what was the problem in the garden? They were told not to eat of the tree. And they saw it, that it looked good and was desirable. Right? And after the law of Moses, when we find out how sin operates in our lives in James chapter 1, what does it say? Everyone is tempted when he's drawn away of his own lust or desires. Right? So the the chief fight isn't in the commandment, it's in the heart, the desires. Right? It comes from the, the, if I could put it this way, two sort of root problems in the human heart. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use a, a little bit of a heavier word, but it, it's, I think, good to think about autonomy. You know, an automobile, self-driving, self-propelling, right? Autonomy is self-rule. It's wanting to be the law for ourselves, right? That's deep in the human heart. I'm the boss of me. Right? And I say that because the scriptures say that. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 17, the effect of the cross of Christ should be that it captures us, constrains us, 
because we've come to the conclusion that if he died for us, we should live for him, no longer live for themselves, but for him who died. Do you know what the operating system of the heart of humans is? To live for self. Self-rule. And law commands go straight into that. Right? So it's not just a forbidden fruit. It's the, I want to rule my life. And if you pass a law over me, you think you can rule my life. And I'm the master of my fate, not you. Right? So it hits us right at that central heart. The coveting is our desire to be able to do what we want, want what we want, say what we want, to live for ourselves as ultimate. And that's an insight into why Colossians chapter 3 and verse 5 actually draws a close connection between coveting and idolatry. Right? The covetous person is an idolater because they actually are worshiping something other than the true God. Right? So at the heart, what Paul's driving deep here is the command not to covet. Sin takes an opportunity in that to appeal to our inherent self-rule and our tendency to take things that are not God and give them God's place in our life. Right? That's what idolatry is. It's you take the place that ought to be God's of rulership over your life and you serve something else. Remember the language of Jesus? You cannot serve two masters. Right? Because you will love the one and hate the other. You'll serve the one. You cannot serve God and mammon. Right? The reality is idolatry, idolatry, the thing that we want more than we want God, that is powered by covetousness. And that's what provokes it. So yes, it may be forbidden fruits in this sense, the thing at any given moment, the thing that is outside of the boundary of God's will for my life that I want, right? God set a boundary line through his law and there's something on the other side of that line that I want is because I want to rule my life and ultimately I want that more than I want God. And the reason I say that is because I'm ready to step across the line for it. Right? Listen to Jesus. If you love me, what? Keep my commandments. Right? So the minute I step across that line, you know what I'm saying about what I love? The thing on the other side of the line. Right? And the reason I love the thing on the other side of the line is because 
I think it will give me something that God is keeping from me. That's how sin operates. Sin takes something good. God has said, listen, do not do not do that or do something. And God does so, we'll see in a little bit, because he's holy, his standards are righteous, and what he says is good, but we doubt him. We listen to Satan. I mean, did God really say? He he knows if you actually, if you take that, all these good things will come to you. That's why he's not letting you do that. Right? That's, That's sin taking opportunity by the commandment to actually provoke and produce the kind of sin that rejects the rule of God and worships something in the creation more than the creator. That's what's going on. And so sin is the problem. Then the second thing he says about sin being the problem is in verses 9 through 11, and that is that sin uses the law to kill sinners. All right, and and let's read 9 through 11. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin became alive and I died. And this commandment, which was to result in life, proved to result in death for me. For sin, taking an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. Now, let me just, uh, let me say this. First, I'm going to postpone wrestling very specifically with the identity of the I here. Because if you look through the rest of the chapter, it's, I think it's the same. You can't, you can't really, you can't really figure out the other part or this part without dealing with each other. And the other part's much more complicated. And I don't want to bring next Sunday's problems to this week. Okay. Because we can get the point. We can get the point without going through all of the possible ramifications of it. What I would say is simply this, is that Paul is certainly, I think, speaking more broadly than his personal testimony. Right? When, for instance, like when Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, "If if I speak with the tongue of men and angels and have not love, right? He's making a statement about himself that actually has broad application. The same same thing is true for you, right? In 1 Corinthians 13. Or earlier in the same book, he does the same thing. He says a personal statement that's not intended to just be purely autobiographical. It's intended to tell a, a, a general truth as well. And so I think I'll just say that much. What Paul is saying here is not intended to just be a personal testimony. He's actually talking about the experience, right, that has applicability to us as well, because he'll come at the end of the book and start talking about we. So he's not, or end of the end of the section and talk about we. So here's the basic point that he's making. Violation of the law brings death. Right? The, the soul that sins shall die, the wages of sin is death. So, so here, if I could describe it this way, it's sort of a tragic reversal. The law that promised life actually becomes an occasion for death. And he, and he says that pretty plainly, right? Look at, look at verse 10. 
And this commandment, which was to result in life, proved to result in death for me. All right, and uh, you're in chapter 7. Just swing over to chapter 10 for just a second. So I want to show you this idea of law and life. Notice verse 5 of chapter 10. For Moses writes that the man who practices the righteousness which is based on law shall live by that righteousness. Okay, so that's a, a huge concept, but, but a part of when we look back at the Mosaic law and we see, for instance, in Leviticus chapter 18 and verse 5, it's, it basically promises life if you keep it. Right, and that's what Paul's alluding to in Romans 10, 5, right? The, the, the righteousness of the law would produce life. I mean, but I think most would recognize that, again, the problem isn't the law, because actually, if I put it this way, the law, the law can be perfectly obeyed if you're not a sinner. Because you know who perfectly obeyed it? Jesus. Right, we sang about it. Come behold the wondrous mystery. Right, he, he completely obeyed and kept the law. Right, the problem, again, is not in the law. It's in the sinner. I will never perfectly keep all the commands of God because I'm a sinner. Right? But that doesn't make the law bad. But it is, in fact, then, the hard reality that this law, which sets the standard, which has to be kept to have life, actually then becomes the sentence of condemnation for me because I didn't. I mean, just think, think about it. I mean, this might be overly simplistic, but, you know, are, are you glad that you're not allowed to murder people in the United States of America? Or at least most people? Right? I mean, I'd, I'd say it um, not really trying to be funny, but if you can murder a baby in the womb, you're murdering somebody. And it's, unfortunately, people push toward it being legal. Right? But, but let's say normal operation, we're not allowed to just go around killing people, and we think that's good. Perhaps until we kill somebody. And then we go... Oh, no. Now, is that a problem with the law? Or is it a problem with the lawbreaker? Right, that's the point here. Sin takes advantage of my law-breaking capacity to bring me under the condemnation of the law. That's what sin does. There's no problem with God's law. When God says, you shall not or you shall that's a, that's a good thing. The problem is sin seizes the opportunity that that good thing creates by exposing my sin and me violating it leads to my death. It results in my death, right? The consequence that comes because of sin is the violation of it, all right? And, and the key, I think, is to understand it in verse 11, Right? The sin takes an opportunity through the commandment, deceive me and through it killed me. I think the deceived here is to be seen as it promised me something it didn't give me. 
Because remember, you're talking coveting again. All right, so I'm gonna just, just for balance of the platform a little bit, I'm going to come to this side, but it's still coveting something in here. And the whole power of coveting is, is that I go, boy, I, I need that, I want that, that's the good. And I put my hand in the trap of sin. It deceived me in that it promised me life and gave me death. And that's the way sin operates. James 1, everyone's drawn away with his own lust and entice, and lust, when it is conceived, brings forth sin, and sin, when it is finished, brings forth death. Right? That's the pathway, and it doesn't advertise that, right? It always advertises a lower price than you pay. It offers you freedom and gives you enslavement. It promises life, and it brings death. And that's the ugliness of sin. That's why the problem is sin. So then that leads Paul to his conclusion, verse 12. So then, all right, given what I just said to you, 7 through 11, here's what you should conclude. The law is holy. The commandment is holy and righteous and good. So the law and the commandment reflect its giver because God is holy. And God gave the law, God gave the commandment, so the commandment is holy. The law is holy. The commandment is righteous. That is, it expresses just or righteous demands from God. He sets a standard that conforms to the character of God. It's righteous. It also provides benefits to those who are under it. I think the idea of good here uh, would be beneficial or benevolent or uh, beneficent, right? It brings goodness. And again, just like I said, are you glad we have a law against murder, right? I mean, every one of us in this room know a world that has no laws is, is chaos, anarchy. Right? So when God gave his law, it was good for the people of Israel. It actually brought order. It brought benefits. It brought blessings. It set standards that were righteous. It was a reflection of God's holy character. The problem is not the law. The problem is sin. Because sin is opportunistic because of our susceptibility to it, and it captures us in that regard. All right, so let me, let me draw out some what I would consider to be some, some important applications and implications, all right? The first thing we need to see then when we look at a text like this is that the problem is inside of us, not outside of us. God's law is holy, righteous, and good. Sin entices and deceives by appeal to our autonomy and idolatry. And this might seem like just a given point, but folks, we are saturated with a culture because it has rejected the truth of God that that operates from a completely different standard than the one I just said to you. Right, The primary starting point of human thinking about the problems in humanity is to look at the outside. Right, They start with a paradigm of humans that is good. 
And if something has gone wrong with the the human, then there must be something that has happened to them. Right? Could have happened from generations before genetically. Could have happened during their child rearing. Could have happened by experiences they've had. But normal human functioning is good. So if there's a problem, the problem has come from outside. And that's why we live in a culture of victims. A culture where the first answer for every failure is to say, well, you did. Or that's not me. Right? If this hadn't happened, I wouldn't have done that. If I had my needs met, then I would have self-actualized. Right? If I hadn't been mistreated or I hadn't been warped in some way, I hadn't had all these things happen, then, then I actually would have been okay. Cause I, you know, I'm, I'm basically a good person who maybe messes up. Not, I want to be king me first. And I worship the creature rather than the creator. And that's, that's harsh, right? It sounds like harsh news in our culture. But, but if you show up to me and you're riddled with cancer and I say, hey, I've got some, uh, I've got some gummy bear vitamins. Take these. They'll fix it. You would not think I loved you or was doing anything good for you to hand you a band-aid to solve your appendicitis. But that's what's happening in our culture. People want to feel good more than they want to be healed when it comes to spiritual things. And the good news can only be appreciated if you understand the bad news. And the bad news is that we're sinners. And we actually love sin. And we love ourselves more than God. The problem is not outside of us. It's inside of us. And this passage helps us understand the real nature of sin. It is a violation of God's will. That is his right to rule. God is completely within his rights to say, thou shalt not. Even if it means you can't eat shrimp or a ham sandwich or wear two kinds of clothing mixed together or sow two kinds of seeds in a field. God has the right to make the rules. He does. And the heart of sin is to say, no, God, I don't agree with you. I can do what I want to do. That's, we have to realize that. And that's, I just picked ones that might seem bizarre to us, but, but think about a world in which we live where people know the will of God. And they go, well, I, I'm exempted from that. I mean, I, I mentioned abortion. Right? Even sometimes 
good Christians want to go, well, yeah, I know the, I know the rule mostly applies, but really, come on. We're going to say that's always the case? Because we don't want, we don't want to say God's got the right to call the shots. Right? And we say all kinds of things like, well, it was just a little white lie, or it was just a whatever. Because we don't want to deal with the fact that it is a violation of the good, righteous, and holy will of God. And and if we're honest, it's simply because we're sinners, so we tend to side with sinners. That's where our sympathies lie. We we want God to just sort of lift the carpet and sweep it underneath. It's not that big a deal. And that's not the way the Scriptures come at it, and we need to recognize that. Okay, it, it, sin is opportunistic, even to the point of using good things to accomplish evil purposes. Do we, do we really recognize that? Right? Because a lot of us might insulate our lives by, by saying we don't do the really bad things. But we have effectively created a world in which we rule and we pursue what we want. And we've taken good things and turned them into idols because our lives are controlled more by them than they are God. That's what this text warns us about. This text also, I think, is helpful, and I'm not going to unpack it as fully as I would love to, but it makes clear to us that sin involves both act and desire. Right? The coveting The coveting is a sin, and coveting is a desire, right? And we live in a world that's trying to separate between those two and go, well, it's okay if you have illicit or sinful desires as long as you don't act on them. And this text won't allow that, right? And and we should know that because Jesus was very clear in Matthew chapter 5, Right? If someone looks at a woman to lust after her, he's already committed adultery. Right? So Jesus didn't go, well, it's okay to sort of want it as long as you don't do it. Right? Both act and desire are described as sinful. That's why he says, if your eye offends you, pluck it out. Right? Because if you're cultivating sinful desires, you are sinning against God. He says, eye and hand, because desire and action are both possible sin venues. And we can't let the world erode that in our thinking. It's like the old guys used to get this, right? An old commentary. According to the theology and religious conviction of the apostle, sin can be predicated not only of acts, but also of inward states. Right? Before the psychologists took over Christianity, we understood this because the Bible's pretty clear about it. Illicit desires are sinful. 
right? We cannot create an internal bubble that's free from the searching examination. We also need to just remember that sin leads to death, right? So, so I don't want to end on the bummer note. So let's, we're going to jump a few weeks ahead real quick. Go to Romans chapter 8, because here's the answer, folks. All right, this isn't all just negative Nelly stuff. This, here's the answer. Therefore, there is now no condemnation, 8-1, for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and, death, and of death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and as an offering for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh, so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. All right, so let me... The law is not the problem. Sin is. You know what the answer is? It's not the law. It's not do better. It's not work harder. It's not figure out how to be righteous then. The answer is the work of Christ who came in His incarnation to die to conquer sin and death. And in His exaltation to the right hand of the Father where He poured out the gift of the Spirit so that you and I could be born again and we could serve in newness of the Spirit and not oldness of the letter. So that what God actually desired can be produced in us by the work of the Spirit. There is hope, friend, right? But you don't really appreciate that hope until you see how bleak and how dark it is without it, right? In other words, we got to turn off the light that we have created in our little, you know, we've got our little big flashlight and we think we can make it through this world shining our little light and we need to see that that battery is going to run out. And it's not a powerful enough light. And once we feel the darkness of our sin, once we feel the darkness of our condemnation, then we're ready to see there's a light. And that light is Christ. He is the one who conquers sin and death. And he has given us his spirit so that we can conquer it in our daily lives as well. Christ is our hope in life and death. We need to look to him. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for providing for us a savior to rescue us from the sinister and horrible nature of sin, to free us from the condemnation that has come upon us because we're sinners and have broken your law. Thank you, Lord, that in the midst of all of our sin, that your mercy has set us free from condemnation, that we can look to you for life and power to live in this sin-cursed world. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.